Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Vladimir Putin has taken his war in Ukraine into phase two. Instead of trying to take the whole country, it's all about cutting off the east. Will this be a turning point in Russia's faltering campaign? This war is uh, far from over. The Russians are regrouping. Their logistical supply lines will be a lot shorter this time. They would have learned a lot of lessons about where they were, went wrong at the beginning. We'll assess how Russia's newly concentrated efforts may have changed the military balance of this war and why the eastern Donbass region is so important. And we'll hear from the edge of Russia's new 300-mile battlefront. We could hear the bombardment in front of us, so I was like, let's turn around. Let's turn around and go the other way. We turn around two miles down the road, we then come under another bombardment. Also on this edition, France decides Marine Le Pen is in touching distance of becoming France's next president. But what would victory for the far-right candidate mean for our defence and security? She wants to leave the integrated structure of NATO. She would completely renegotiate the French alliance with America. And I think that she would feel obliged if she was elected to kick the table over and see if she could rebuild something different. Eight weeks ago, it looked like Russia was trying to take the whole of Ukraine. That didn't happen, and the military operation certainly didn't go to plan. And so Ukraine is now experiencing phase two of President Putin's war, a concentrated assault along a 300-mile line to take the east of the country. The Donbass that he wants to conquer. Of course, we knew that well in advance. We have been preparing ourselves. Ukrainian MP Ina Sovson says her country's troops in the east are outgunned but determined. But of course, our soldiers, our military men and women are so much more committed. Uh, and uh, we also are fighting for our land. So we don't really have a other way out of this except for winning. And Ukraine has its most experienced, strongest ground forces in the east, where they've been fighting Russian-backed separatists for eight years. More recently, they've also been training a volunteer army to assist against Russia. For some of these people, they have never had a firearm in their hands at a lifetime. Some of them are bankers, bakers, painters, and right now we're making fighters out of them. They have so far held off Russian forces, but after a string of early military errors, Russia seems to have learned some lessons. Now they have most of their effort focused on a single objective, led by a single commander. And former British tank commander Justin Crump told BFBS SITREP the location of this fight is much easier for Russia. They're fighting now much closer to their supply bases, and they've got good railway lines running through. They've sorted out their electronic warfare. They've sorted out their command control much better than they had it. They've still got problems with morale. They've still got problems with the ground and the terrain being very hard to navigate at the moment. And they've still got problems with the resilience of the Ukrainian defence. But this is going to be a much more evenly balanced fight than we saw around Kiev and in the northeast in the earlier days. So what now? The end of this war depends on either Russian forces being wholly defeated or Vladimir Putin being satisfied he's gained enough. But what would satisfy him? We'll try to address that question in a moment. But first, let's get the assessment of Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark on the balance of military power right now. Uh, Michael, Russia hasn't really scored any meaningful victory in this war yet. Is that about to change, do you think? Uh, Well, it might, yes. I mean, so far, the Russians have lost in just about every area of the war. And this uh, new offensive in the Donbass, which is going to be quite considerable, is probably going to be decisive now for what happens in the next 12 months or so. 
Um, the thing is, the Russians seem to be getting off to a rolling start with this offensive. I suspect because they're under pressure from the Kremlin to do something quickly. Um, that they, they, they've still got a lot of material coming in behind their forces. They've got a lot of build-up still to create, and yet they're pushing already in this north-south line from uh, uh, Kharkiv down to Mariupol, and then east to west against that line uh, towards the Izium salient that they have created. But they seem to be getting off to a sort of rolling start rather than a, a real thunderclap start, rather than a, into a real punch start. And I suspect that they may have some reverses before the weight of their forces begins to build in. And if we look at just one city, Mariupol, we've seen eight weeks of incredible resistance by Ukrainians, but surrounded and under bombardment. And as we speak, it does look like time is almost up for them. If that is the case, is it something Russia could repeat on a much larger scale to take eastern Ukraine? Well, if they do, they will suffer grievously for it. I mean, what Mariupol has shown is that um, street fighting is extraordinarily difficult. I mean, the Russians have got Mariupol apart from the Azovstal steelworks and the remnants of four or five of the Ukrainian units seem to be down there and their, their, their span of combat is now measured in hours, I think, not days. Um, but what Mariupol also demonstrates, apart from the, as it were, the moral issue, the, the sort of David and Goliath nature of this war, um, what it really demonstrates is that the Russians are not very good at all at, at taking cities. They can stand off and bombard them and they can reduce them to nothing and then walk in. But if they think that they're going to have to do this, you know, against other cities in the eastern part of the country, then this war would last a very long time indeed. And so the Russians, I'm sure, are looking for something um, that they can take away from this war that will not involve them having to take cities in the way that they've eventually taken Mariupol. Well, in the early days of this war, it looked like Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, was the prize being eyed by Vladimir Putin. Now it does seem to be the Donbass. So does it hold the key to Ukraine's future? And if so, why? James Hurst is our guide to the region that has been central to this war since long before it began. The bulk of the area that Russia is trying to take now is an industrial region of eastern Ukraine called the Donbass. And this has effectively been at war in various forms since 2014. The Donbass is made up of two of Ukraine's oblasts, administrative regions, Donetsk and Luhansk. Both of them have Russian as their primary language and big ethnic Russian populations, but not the majority. Estimates are around 40% of people in the Donbass are ethnic Russians. Now, when Russia illegally annexed Crimea in 2014, ethnic tensions in Donbass tipped over. Russian separatists, helped by Moscow, began fighting Ukraine's forces, declaring Donetsk and Luhansk breakaway regions, although the separatists controlled only around a third of each oblast. Eight years on, Vladimir Putin used this ongoing battle to justify his invasion of Ukraine, even in his final days of denying an invasion was planned. I consider it necessary to take a long overdue decision to immediately recognise the independence and sovereignty of Donetsk People's Republic and Luhansk People's Republic. And so you might put it down to Russian pride and nationalism and think Vladimir Putin may be happy to settle for taking Donetsk and Luhansk and then bringing his troops home. But there is more than pride at stake. What they still intend to do, however, is so reduce Ukraine as a state that it's essentially a vassal of Russia. The former commander of UK Joint Forces Command, General Sir Richard Barons, believes Moscow wants strategic gains beyond the Donbass. 
another 175 miles west along the Black Sea coast to link up with Russian-occupied Crimea and beyond. In the Russian view, they will now have focused their forces on a 300-mile front and they'll find a way of breaking through and probably encircling the two-fifths of the Ukrainian military that are in the Donbass. If they were able to do that, then they will imagine they could close up to the Dnieper River, which would be a natural bifurcation in geographical terms, and they will then consider seizing Odessa, because that isolates Ukraine from the sea, uh, and they will then think again about what they do about the regime in Kiev. The chances are Vladimir Putin is still hedging his bets, but he seems to be aiming for at least a Russian-dominated breakaway state, and is perhaps still hoping he may then conquer a diminished Ukraine. But it's probably only Vladimir Putin who actually knows what he would view as success in this war, and even he might be uncertain at this point. James Hurst, Michael Clark, do you think President Putin has a clear idea of what would count as victory, enough for him to end this special military operation, as he calls it, in Ukraine? I'm not sure, because I don't know that he really understands himself what he wants out of this war now. I mean, he began it on a huge self-delusion that Ukraine should not exist as a state and that he could somehow swallow it up. And that was all linked to his ambition, which is pretty clear for a nouveau Russia. And what he would like to see is a, a new Russia that includes, in effect, Belarus, Ukraine, and maybe even Moldova, as a, a great power of Europe. That's what he wants to be his legacy. And these huge ambitions, which are now very clear from the way he talks, have been reduced down to this special military operation in one part of one of the states that he thinks are part of his nouveau Russia and his, his new 21st century uh, empire, in effect. And so I, I think he would... He would regard it as important that he can talk about the seizure of Mariupol and he'll play that up as if he has, by seizing Mariupol, destroying it, um, he's actually denazified that part of the country and protected the Russian speakers in that part of the world. Beyond that, I think he will then consider what his next move may be, but I think he still exists in a sort of a web of delusion as to what this is all about and the strength of the forces that are now lined up against him. And we've talked recently about May the 9th, Russia's Victory Day, the idea that President Putin wants a success to declare on that day. Is there a chance now that he actually doesn't want to wrap things up swiftly and he sees all of the current situations as a stepping stone? I think he probably will, yes. I'm sure on May the 9th he will declare all sorts of elements of victory and I guess that Mariupol will be the, uh, the, the, the focus of what he says. And it might give him an idea that, well, you know, this Donbass operation, which will go for some months, as Richard Barons was saying, you know, he can't say, well, that's all over, but he can say that they've achieved their main objective of Mariupol and denazification um, and we've now got to move on to c consolidate our protection of the Russian speakers in the Donbass and that may he may admit that that may take some time but you know whatever the situation on the ground is on May the 9th it will undoubtedly be spun by Moscow as as a small victory in a bigger war which has now become a war for Russia's survival against the fascists and the imperialists of the western world.
Well, let's hear now from close to Russia's new consolidated front line in Ukraine. We've already spoken several times on BFBS SITREP to independent filmmaker and former Royal Marine Emil Gerson. He's now in Kharkiv, Ukraine's second city, an area the UK Ministry of Defence assesses as contested. So the Russian troops are probably about four to six miles from where I am currently now. There's a lot of incoming into the city. The people in Kharkiv, because they're so close to the Russian border, fear the fact is what is Russia's next uh, move is they're now going to be assault onto the city. So at the moment, people are very apprehensive about what's the future for the city. And what kinds of attacks is Kharkiv experiencing? Is it artillery missiles, ground assault troops or, or is it a combination? So at the moment, there's a lot of um, offensive action to the to the east and to the north and p- some of to the south, but really very much that the Ukrainians are holding them off. They're holding their own actually physically on the front line. What the Russians are doing is they're carrying out a lot of bombardment, indirect fire through MLSRSs, um, through artillery and through mortars. So they are targeting inside the city where civilians are. Um, civilians yesterday were killed seven were killed yesterday 15 the day before is that there's no military strategic targets that are hitting within the center of the city however the russians have continued doing it what i put that down to is the psychological war that the russians are continually bombarding the city so that civilians will leave so if there is a full assault they have less of an issue with civilians and how long will you stay there what will determine when you decide to leave so I'm currently in Kharkiv, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to give it a couple more days and then probably move back to Kiev because I've got other things that are going on, other projects that I'm working on. Clearly, I know the threat. I've been in several war zones. If I'm on the front line with the soldiers, I understand the threat that you could be attacked and you could be in direct fire. But being in the city, because rounds land literally anywhere, we're, we're driving towards an area and we could hear the bombardment in front of us. So I was like, let's turn around. Let's turn around and go the other way. We turn around two miles down the road, we then come under another bombardment. It's like, right, okay. And that's when we come across the civilians that were just killed. Is is the fact is here in this city is rounds can land literally anywhere. And it's this risk it's weighing up the risk um, versus rewards on how long gonna stay here for. Uh, can I also ask you about the two British men captured by Russia and shown on TV mm. asking to be part of a prisoner exchange? You're in mm. contact with other British people who've gone to fight for Ukraine. What effect has that had on the community? Yeah, so Aidan and Sean, I know very well. I, I, they're, they're good friends of mine. Sean is actually one of my previous documentaries, Robin Hood Complex. I, I, know, I know them very well. The fact is that they were serving in the military. They fought in Syria in the YPG and they came to Ukraine. I know them from Syria and then I filmed with them. Is The fact is that now they're being taken as prisoners, even though they're officially with the Ukrainian Marines, morale amongst the volunteers that are here is dropped a little bit to a certain degree because they think these two men that were serving with the Ukrainian Marines are officially are now being treated as propaganda tools. What will happen to me as a volunteer? That's not stopping volunteers still coming to Ukraine. In fact, some of them are quite determined more to push on because they're like they're taking them and using propaganda tools. But overall, the morale among some men now thinking about, is it worth being here? Because if I get captured by the Russians, I'm potentially going to go to prison for many years. And two months in, do you feel you have any sense of how this war is going to end? Yeah, that, that, that's the golden question. I get that. I get asked that quite often, when's this war going to end? I don't think there's any light at the end of the tunnel. I think Putin's main objectives are for the recognition of the Donbass region as two independent states, also Ukraine to recognise Crimea. 
I don't think the president of Ukraine is going to allow that to happen. It's, it's political suicide, so he's going to continue fighting. But the thing is here in Ukraine is everyone I speak to wants to continue fighting. And the reason they want to continue fighting is that they say if Russia pulls out tomorrow, the war ends. If they were to surrender, they lose their nation. So very much amongst the people of Ukraine, they continue to they want to fight to the end. Emil Gessen speaking to me from Kharkiv on Wednesday. Uh, Michael, Emil says the people of Ukraine will fight to the end. How are they doing for the tools to do that? Lots of weapons have been sent, more still being pledged, but lots have been used. Do we have any sense of how their frontline supplies are doing from rockets right down to bullets? Some sense of it, yes. I mean, they're getting quite a lot of supplies of the things that they had before. So the lighter weapons, the ammunition, the um, anti-tank and anti-aircraft uh, rounds and so on. But as this war moves into a new phase, what they need now are the heavier weapons and the weapons that they can use for their own offensives rather than just for their defensive operations. And some of those are being pledged and some of those are being sent. Only yesterday, I mean, Blumberg reported that the Netherlands had definitely committed their supplies of the of the greatest howitzer in the world. It's the, uh, the Panzerhaubitz 2000, the German Panzerhauser. Um, and that is rate of fire is very high, its accuracy is high, and it outranges anything that the Russians have got in, in the howitzer class. Now, you, you know, that sort of, of weapon you, with um, anti-artillery radar and anti-artillery uh, spotters is very effective. Now, so the question is, the Netherlands are giving their supplies, uh, mm. the Germans won't. Uh, but they should. If the Ukrainians can get enough of those sort of things and more T-72 tanks in time, then they could probably give a very good account of themselves in the Donbass. But they, they're they not short of shorter range weapons. They need now the heavier weapons in enough numbers. Because one thing we've seen from this war, and we shouldn't have been surprised by it, is the enormous wastage rate, the enormous attrition rate, not just on, on soldiers, but on heavy equipment, any equipment. Um, you know, a lot of stuff that goes in is, is wrecked within about a month. Uh, and that's you know, a month of high, high tempo fighting essentially requires a complete refresh of a lot of mm. your equipment. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrep. Now, this weekend, the people of France elect their next president. Their choice is between keeping centrist Emmanuel Macron or replacing him with Marine Le Pen, leader of the far-right-wing National Rally. The rest of us can only watch as French voters choose someone who will also have a huge influence over our defence and security. Marine Le Pen wants to withdraw France from NATO's integrated command and build friendly ties with Russia, just as the rest of the alliance is isolating Moscow and pulling harder together. She insists she is on Ukraine's side in the current war, but has previously defended Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea, saying the territory was never invaded. Emmanuel Macron isn't exactly an unquestioning fan of NATO, having previously branded the alliance brain dead, but he would represent continuity and relative stability, particularly in the current crisis. So how much is at stake here for the UK and the world? Lord Peter Ricketts has served as the UK's national security advisor and then ambassador to France. I think actually there's a great deal at stake because it is an election between two candidates with completely different approaches to the world of defence and security. Emmanuel Macron, of course, he's a known quantity. Um, with the addition of the experience of Ukraine, which has put NATO much back into the centre of the equation, uh, I think that Emmanuel Macron would look to work closely with Germany, given the new German interest in doing a lot more in defence and security. 
and also, I think, to repair relations with Britain, which are pretty broken at the moment. Marine Le Pen is a completely different quantity. She put out a statement of her policy, which started from the assumption that there would be a common interest between Britain outside the EU and France under Marine Le Pen. I think it's completely untrue. She wants to leave the integrated structure of NATO. She would completely renegotiate the French alliance with America. She's been very dismissive of Germany as a defense partner, and she's close to Vladimir Putin. So the arrival of Marine Le Pen would be really extremely disruptive in the Franco-British relationship, as well as with France's relations with all its allies. And when we talk about Marine Le Pen as far right, that can seem a bit simplistic. It implies very extreme politics. Is she a true extremist? Well, she is a populist, nationalist politician who really does not believe in alliances with fellow democracies. Uh, She's dismissive of the Americans uh, and also pretty anti-European, although she's not now proposing that France would actually leave the EU. But she is clearly looking for a fight with the EU in a whole number of areas. So I would say she's an extreme nationalist who would really want to take France out of the sort of international cooperation that uh, the French have been pursuing ever since the Second World War. That's why I think it's a point of complete break if Marine Le Pen were to be elected. Of course, Emmanuel Macron is a known quantity, but that doesn't guarantee continuity. What would be the effect for NATO of another Macron term? I think that Emmanuel Macron um, has, in a way, seen the uh, necessity and the importance of NATO as a result of the Ukraine conflict. You might remember that three years ago, he was talking about NATO being brain dead. He didn't see any strategic unifying focus for NATO. Now there is clearly a very uh, significant single unifying threat which NATO is facing up to. And the French are very much part of that. Marine Le Pen clearly has a message of French national grandeur and power. Surely she knows she can't do that through isolationism. Well, I don't know that she does know that because she has never been elected to anything. Her policies, which are really no more than slogans, have never been tested. Um, And I think that she would feel obliged if she was elected to kick the table over and see if she could rebuild something different maybe experience would show that her policies are deeply misguided. Um, they're trying to rebuild the alliance with Putin to walk away from the alliance with America and NATO uh, would cost French dearly in terms of their security and their reputation internationally. But it may be that she has to learn that by experience. Now, when you were national security advisor, the Lancaster House Agreement was signed. Britain has a bilateral defence cooperation agreement with France. Uh, would a Le Pen presidency mean, what would it mean for the UK and France relations? Well, if you read Madame Le Pen's manifesto, she acknowledges that there is uh, this Franco-British defence cooperation, but she says she would want to reinvent it uh, and that she would uh, want to test Britain's goodwill, for example, by demanding that Britain buys French Exocet missiles rather than missiles from America. And she doubts the value of the combined joint expeditionary force because she doesn't see their value and probably discontinue them. So she is not offering any realistic basis for a reset of UK-French defence relations. I think, again, uh, London would have no interest in that kind of, a, you know, uh, having to prove our loyalty to the French by buying French equipment. Uh, it wouldn't work. It would break what we achieved in Lancaster House without replacing anything useful with it. NATO has come through a disruptive presidency from a key member. It survived the Trump era. Is there a risk of actually weakening NATO's hand by talking up concerns about the Le Pen presidency? 
I think it's right that we call out the pen policies which we think would be damaging to the alliance, which is important to all of us. The French passed through a period under General de Gaulle where they pulled out of the integrated military structure. Um, in the end, they found that isolated them. And under President Sarkozy, they came back into it. I think if they left again, it would be an enormous disappointment among allies. But with the Germans more determined than ever to strengthen their defense uh, relationships, people would accept that France had taken a rather maverick decision to put itself on the sidelines and await the time in the future when once again the French saw the error of that and the need to come back into full cooperation. It would be the most extraordinary time for a major NATO country to withdraw from the integrated military structure just when the alliance is facing the biggest military challenge in Europe since the Cold War. Peter Ricketts, former ambassador to Paris and before that the UK's national security advisor. Professor Michael Clark, just explain to us a bit more about that NATO integrated command that Marine Le Pen wants France to withdraw from. Would that effectively mean French defence capability is not at NATO's disposal? No, not necessarily. I mean, this is what, as Peter said, I mean, it's what happened in 1966 when de Gaulle withdrew. I mean, he withdrew from the organization, but not from the treaty itself. What de Gaulle did and what Marine Le Pen is saying she would do is we'll stay a member of the alliance, so just like an old fashioned alliance, but we won't participate in this multinational military organization that is unique in history and that NATO represents. And the point about that is that, as Peter Rickett said, it isolated the French military. And the, 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 the great problem for them was in 1991 in Desert Storm to liberate Kuwait the French couldn't fit in. They had this big coalition that was basically a NATO coalition. It worked on NATO principles. And the French were completely irrelevant to it because they didn't fit in anywhere. And Norman Schwarzkopf, it was this great left hook um, to, to actually encircle Iraqi forces. And he put the French on the very outside of the hook. And he said to them, um, he said, look, if anything goes wrong, we rely on you guys to protect us. We're really leaning on you. But the reason that they were on the outside of the hook is that nobody could deal with them on the inside of the hook because mm. all of their uh, equipment was different and their procedures were different and so they had this problem they were on the outside of this great swing so they had to f travel the furthest and the fastest as this great left hook took place and they were completely and utterly irrelevant to it and that really went to the heart of French military pride and not surprising that was 1991 in 1995 the French came back into the NATO military committee and then in 2009 Sarkozy brought them back into the organization fully so what Marine Le Pen is saying, she'd go back to the de Gaulle model, mm. where we're a member of the alliance, but not part of the organization. And the effect of that would simply be to leave French forces completely isolated from the work of all of their allies. It would be a military disaster again for the French. Well, let's finish at the Invictus Games, the international sporting tournament for injured and sick military personnel and veterans. The fifth tournament is finally underway in The Hague after two years of delays thanks to COVID. The event, founded by Prince Harry, is as much about unity and working together as it is about competition. You are part of the Invictus family and we not only respect and salute you, we see you. Look no further than our representation from Team Ukraine. Your bravery in choosing to come and for being here tonight cannot be overstated. 
There are 19 Ukrainians taking part in the Invictus Games. There should have been more. Some members of the team were killed before they could travel. Another has reportedly been captured by the Russians. Those who are in The Hague expect to join their country's fight when the Invictus Games are over. Uh, I'm Igor Biskarovaini. I'm a Ukrainian team member. We had uh, one mission when we start preparing uh, to compete, uh, but now our mission uh, say all word about unbroken of Ukraine. All our team will return at home. Uh, some uh, team members return uh, to a fight position. My mission now is volunteer center. We uh, supported army, uh, supporting army, um, bulletproof suits, helmets, and uh, so on, so on. Michael, a final thought. The human spirit demonstrated by Ukrainians at the Invictus Games, the human spirit demonstrated by those still holding out after weeks in Mariupol, how sorely is that spirit going to be tested in the coming weeks in phase two of this war? Oh, I'm sure a great deal. I mean, I think the Invictus Games are a great thing and they remind us of the importance of humanity both in and through war. And what we're going to see in the Donbass is the biggest battle in, on European soil since the Second World War. It's not so far away from Kursk, which was the, you know, the biggest tank battle of the Second World War in 1943, a, a huge battle. And so everyone's spirit will be tested, and not least those of us who are in the analysis and observation business, because we all have to hold on to our professional standards, but also to our sense of humanity. And I, I support everything that Prince Harry is doing on the Invictus Games. I mean, he's a, he's a controversial royal these days, but my goodness, he's done a good thing in, mm. in creating these games and pushing them through, because I think we've got to hold on to the values that, that, that were demonstrated there in The Hague as we observe this next stage in what is a nasty, nasty European war. Professor Michael Clark, thank you very much for your time and my thanks to all of our guests. We're back with another BFBS SITREP next Thursday. Until then, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and you can catch up with past programmes on the website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. There you can also find links to subscribe to the podcast. But for now, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>